0: All right, good afternoon, and welcome to today's timely panel on Barbados's transition to Republican status in regional perspective. And it's wonderful to see so many people um, joining us from across the world. This is a joint event of the UCL Institute of the Americas Caribbean Seminar Series and of the AHRC funded project The Visible Crown, Queen Elizabeth II and the Caribbean, 1952 to the present. My name is Kate Quinn. I'm Associate Professor of Caribbean History at the Institute of the Americas, and I'll be chairing this event today with two hats on. Um, one as convener of the Caribbean Seminar Series, along with my colleagues Gad Human and Steve Cushon, and the other um, as co-investigator on the Visible Crown project, along with colleagues at City University, University of London, Southampton and the University of the West Indies. And if you'd like to know more about the Caribbean Seminar Series or the Visible Crown Project, um, i put details of the web pages and Twitter handles in the um, welcome slide. I can also post them to the chat. So on behalf of UCL Institute of the Americas and the Visible Crown, we're really delighted to welcome our distinguished panellists. Professor Cynthia Barrow-Giles, University of the West Indies, Cape Hill, co-investigator on the Visible Crown Project, and advisor to Barbados's Republican Status Transition Advisory Committee. His Excellency Ambassador David Comision, Ambassador of Barbados to CARICOM and founder of the Clement Payne Movement and Global African Congress. Dr. Derek O'Brien, Reader in Public Law at Oxford Brookes University and a leading expert in Caribbean constitutions. And last but by no means least, Professor Carolyn Cooper, Emeritus Professor of the University of the West Indies, Mona, prolific scholar of Jamaican popular culture and weekly columnist for the Jamaica Gleaner. In the interest of time, I hope that our panelists don't mind that I leave the introductions there. Um, Suffice to say that it's an honor to host such an accomplished set of speakers, and we're very grateful that you've given up your time today uh, to share your insights and your expertise. In terms of running order, we're going to take the speakers in the order that they're listed in the programme. Each speaker has eight to 10 minutes. Um, I will signal when you're at eight minutes. We'll run the talks together and take all the questions and comments at the end. Uh, You can post your questions to the chat and use the raise hand function at the end. And as ever, please remember to keep your microphones muted um, if you're not speaking. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the floor over to our first panelist, Professor Cynthia Barrow-Giles.
1: Thank you very much, Kate. Um, I'm certainly delighted to be here this, this evening with you, of course, in the Caribbean is, um, afternoon. Unfortunately, I don't think Kate actually shared with you, but I am supposed to be in another meeting right now, a very important meeting that I escaped from briefly to make my presentation. Unfortunately, I have to go right back to the meeting, so I apologize. But um, Ambassador Commission is here, and I'm quite sure that whatever grounds I would cover, whatever I have to say, he is, of course, quite qualified to speak on those issues as well. There is, in fact, what I want to do today with you is to just briefly briefly take you through what is taking place in Barbados now and some of the issues which have emerged in relation to the decision of the Barbados government to transit to a republic um, in a matter of um, three weeks' time. Um, The meeting, of course, I'm attending is related directly to that transition and what is required. There is some, in fact, I think misunderstanding in the public in the public domain um, on the issue of Barbados transition to a republic. When I read some of the commentary from, you know, Latin America also, you know, the UK and elsewhere, there is a view that this discussion on republicanism from Barb- for Barbados is coming out of the blue, far from that those people who have followed the um, political development of Barbados and politics, local politics, and for that matter, those people who have followed regional politics would appreciate that in fact, the issue of the monarchy and the need to what we describe as closing the final circle of independence um, as the the debate has generally presented it, has in fact been on the political agenda of Barbados and the Caribbean um, for quite some time. Um, I would also like to place out there that perhaps had Barbados achieved its independence in the 1970s, as in fact, Dominica did, perhaps it's likely that in that context, that Barbados may have in fact, immediately made the transition to a a, um, a republic rather than in fact um, adopt this sort of status quo position that we have for most of the English speaking Caribbean countries. Um, that could be disputed, of course, because we do have the cases of countries like St. Lucia and St. Kitts and Nevis who opted even after um, Dominica had made the transition to a republic, who opted to, in fact, remain as constitutional monarchies. So I want to locate the, the start of the discussion on, you know, efforts to make that transition or, in fact, to consider that transition back to the 1970s. And some of us would recall, and certainly Kate Queen would recall, that the 1970s in the region was quite a a, a turbulent period. Um, And there is in fact, I think, when you look at the establishment of the first constitutional review commission in Barbados in 1978 to 1979, there was in fact no doubt that this um, turbulent period, not only what was taking place in Trinidad and Tobago, perhaps in Jamaica, but certainly what was taking place in the Eastern Caribbean, that that certainly would have impacted Barbados. So that when we look at the Cox Commission, which was established by the the Barbados government, um, we can note that among other things, that commission was charged with the responsibility to consider changes to the Barbados constitution and to make recommendations, if those recommendations are appropriate, to buttress the democratic character of the state. Um, I do believe that to a large extent or to a significant extent, that commission was very much informed by the turbulent period of the 1970s in the Caribbean. And so when you read that report, even if you read the report very briefly or very superficially, what you see is that though the commission itself was not given much latitude with respect to what it could recommend for the country, um, largely because in terms of its terms of reference, the commission um, was told point blank that parliamentary democracy And the continuation of parliamentary democracy in Barbados was unquestioned. And so in a sense, there was no entertainment of a deviation from the constitutional structure in Barbados. However, when you look at the commission, there is absolutely no doubt that the commission in a sense was extremely timid in relation to the um, recommendations that it made. And that kind of timidity was reflected in the fact that in, from my perspective, when you read that, that report, there's actually no, no, no or any noteworthy effort to, record, to consider any substantial uh, measure of constitutional reform in the country. I think when you look at the report also, it made it very clear that far from the turbulence of the 1970s um, probably should be considered in terms of the recommendations that ought to be made or some of the changes that ought to be made. The commission felt that it was precisely because of those turbulent period that Barbados had to be very careful in terms of what it was suggesting for, for, for reform. So it was very conservative, extremely timid. So fast track to 20 years later, where we have the Ford Commission, which undertook um, essentially what the Cox Commission had done, but which was not as limited um, in terms of its, 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 its terms of reference. Um, as the fox as the Cox commission was in fact limited and among the things which that commission considered was the transition of Barbados to a parliamentary republic now um, of course the commission did recommend for Barbados so it's in advance of the Cox commission it did recommend the transition of Barbados to um, to a, a a republic The other thing I also want to note is that, These two early efforts at reforming the constitution of Barbados were in fact organized by the government itself. It is the government who established the reform commissions, and uh, by and large, both of the commissions, in spite of the fact that the second commission, the fourth commission, recommended a transition to a republic, what you see is that in terms of the two commissions, they really considered tinkering around the fringes of the constitutional monarchy in, in Barbados with the sole exception of the recommendation of um, moving to a republic. It did not, I believe, generally call for too much broader and and deeper. There were not too many broader and deeper calls for the remaking of the Constitutional Order of Barbados outside of that singular recommendation of transiting to the republic in uh, in the 1990s. But since the 1990s, there have been very little that has taken place in Barbados in relation to um, fulfilling that promise that a lot of us felt would have been realized when the commission submitted this report. So that in a sense, what you saw is that in the last 20 years, there have been very little further the developments, except that um, in Barbados, there was the drafting of a parliamentary republic constitution in 2004. Um, that 2004 parliamentary public constitution was designed to re- both repeal and replace the 1966 constitution. And all of that was of course taking place on the prime minister, Owen Alfa. Now, the draft, of course, had been, I believe, um, debated. It was accepted, I believe, by the prime minister, the then prime minister. But that, that, that draft itself, until recently, never really made the light of day. So that most people were unaware of what were the, I think, the contents of that particular um, constitution. One of the issues associated with that draft constitution was that there was a promise made that there would have been a referendum. And in fact, the Barbados government did act upon that promise and they passed the Referendum Act of 2005. But that that, for a number of reasons, I'm not sure exactly why, that referendum actually never took place um, in in, in the country. Now we can fast track then 20 years later, which is the now, And in terms of the discussion on on republicanism for Barbados, I would say that all credit must be given to the prime minister. All credit has to be given to the prime minister for initiating um, that that call and for taking what I think is really a bold step. At the same time that I recognize that the credit must be given to her at the same time, all blame must also sit very um, squarely on the shoulders of the prime minister. And I say blame largely because um, there are a number of people in Barbados number of se- and people from various sectors, including the legal, some of the legal fraternity that believe that um, Barbados may not quite be ready. I don't think they're in the majority and that the whole process, the manner in which the transition is, is, is being undertaken in Barbados is not only untidy. Um, it's, 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 let's just say it's a, it's a very untidy process and that it does not speak of um, what in some quarters variously have been described as um, popular constitutionalism that that is lacking in this current process. Now we all know, of course, and I don't need to go into that. That the decision was announced publicly in the throne speech in September of 2020, and the government put it in this context that in fact the time had come now in 2020 and certainly 2021 for Barbados to fully leave their colonial past and to take what they describe as a fresh guard and a new vision, restructuring and reimagining. Um, Barbados given, of course, the circumstances um, that Barbados had to confront with. Now, in the aftermath of the announcement, it took a few months for the government to announce the establishment of a a committee, RISTA, that is the Republican Status Transition Advisory Committee, a 10-member committee representing a handful, and I say a handful, of key sectors such as the trade unions, religious community, the cultural community. But overwhelmingly, I think one of the striking things about RISTAC is that it is dominated by government officials. And at the end of the day, because we don't have time to get into it and I do have to run, what we get is that RISTAC, for all intents and purposes, was sort of hand delivered a, br- a blueprint um, in relation to the, trans- the transition um, to um, republicanism. Now critics have, as I said a while ago, have argued that as a direct result of that, what we get is the situation where um, this present moment does not reflect the level of public engagement and participation that ought to be associated with constitutional um, engineering in the country. But this is a limited constitutional um, engineering, because at this moment, there would be no major changes to the constitution of Barbados prior to the Republican transition on November the 30th, 2021. So as I indicated a while ago, the committee had a very limited agenda which was essentially to advise on the transition though the substantive work on the advice to the transition was actually done by a smaller committee which is dominated by legal experts under the guide excuse me under the guidance of the attorney general now in Barbados and today I read uh, an article in the newspaper where a leader of one of the small minor insignificant political parties have in fact declared or um um have I think taking the matter to court so there has been some legal certainties or uncertainties regarding um, the independence constitution and uh, the stated way in which the constitution would be in fact freed from the act of the british parliament now the the, the prime minister took that on board i have to say the prime minister did take that on board and uh, not to be derailed by the legal arguments which were out there and in the committee itself Um, the prime minister did strike a compromise and what the prime minister did was to in fact seek legal advice from prominent um, or prominent Caribbean jurists and so by the end of and 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 they basically agreed that the process that Barbados was in fact pursuing was in fact the correct the correct process and so by um, September the 24th 2021 having obtained that legal advice from chief justice former chief justice David Simmons and former Chief Justice of the Caribbean Court of Appeals, Sir Dennis Bryan, um, the Prime Minister and the rest of the committee was convinced that the Independence Order and Act of 1966 had in fact authorized the Parliament of Barbados to amend or repeal the British legislation forming part of local law and that they could proceed. So consequently, given that legal advice, um, the government um, wrapped up its drafting of the constitution. And what what we got was, that the Constitution Amendment number, well, there's no number yet, but the Constitution Amendment Act of 2021, notice of which was given on the 21st of of September, 2021, and then first read on, I think, the the 22nd of September, notice provided on the 23rd, that was easily passed in the House of Assembly. And then of course, it was also passed in the Senate quickly thereafter. And it was done, of course, in a context where the government has the majority in the House of Assembly, that is, they have 29 members elected so that the required two-thirds was easily obtained in the Senate. They have a majority, but they also got support from independent senators. And I have to say that all but one of the senators actually, all the senators, I think, actually supported. Um, So there was that two-thirds majority. Now, in terms of the, what was um, agreed to, uh, what the constitution has, um, what we see is that the most critical changes are related to the nature of the parliamentary republic. And what was decided was that Barbados would retain its non-executive head of state, and that there would be an erasure of the references to the crown and the queen on, in that constitution, where it was in fact relevant. So that in effect, there's no serious consideration being given to an executive head of state and very early the prime minister had announced that the present governor general would in fact be dominated by her and hopefully with the consent of the leader of the opposition and all of that was secured. And so what we got is um, parliament meeting um, given the provisions of that um, constitution, parliament met and of course the election of the new president um, um, took place. So what I'm saying to you is that if you need to get some more information, what you need to do is to look at sections 28 to 34 of the new constitution, because it's those sections of the new constitution that provide the, the, for the functions and the method of appointment of the president and the term of office. The method of appointment of the president, which is the most important thing under this new constitution, does not in fact deviate from what occasionally, from what, sorry, does not deviate from what essentially occurs in Dominica and Trinidad and Tobago. What the new constitution does is provide for the prime minister to consult with the leader of the opposition and once there is concurrence, there would a joint nomination will be made and I think that is exactly what happens. The speaker would notify both houses of the joint um, nomination and members would be given the opportunity to vote in, um, in you know, in the, in the, to vote on the issue. That was done, that was done. So Right now, of course, as we know, we'll have a new president um, in office on the night of the 30th of of November, I think, or the 29th of November. David will correct me if I'm wrong. I just want to end. I know that I have been given the time off, but just because I had to explain my absence in a while, I just want to say that um, when we look at this process in Barbados, it is very unconventional. It's an unconventional post-independence approach because there's heavy emphasis on the parliament as the primary, means of constitutional reform, which is really atypical for the region. Um, But what I would say is that that approach has been very fruitful in Barbados. And essentially what we have is two two stages. The first stage is the transition to the Republic in November. And then after that, what has been promised by the prime minister, and she keeps on saying that repeatedly, there'll be a package of comprehensive constitutional reforms. And so that process would in fact be very um, exhaustive. there are arguments, of course, that the transition is done in haste. Um, and the PM's response to that is what? His? Because we have been dealing with the situation for the last, what, over like 40 years or so. And, 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 and therefore, she has argued that there's no indecent haste. There is no haste. If anything, we have come to the republic um, rather late in the day. So the response is that therefore this has taken Barbados decades to get to this point, um, decades after republicanism. Was recommended, and so the time is right um,
0: for the transition to the republic. Thank you, Keith. Thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate you um, uh, taking time out of a meeting with the Prime Minister, no less, to come and join us. So um, thank you again for that uh, excellent run through of the uh, the historical origins and the evolution and the the nature of the current transition. Um, I'm going to hand over now to our next speaker, who is Ambassador David Commission.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Kate. And um, I will try to build upon um, the presentation just made by um, Cynthia. I want to begin with a quotation from Thomas Paine. It's from a 1795 pamphlet titled, On First principles of government. And this is what Thomas Paine had to say back then. To be satisfied of the right of a thing to exist. We must be satisfied that it had a right to begin. If it had not a right to begin. It has not the right to continue. By what right then? Did the hereditary system begin? The wrong which began a thousand years ago is as much a wrong as if it began today. End of quote. Well, of course, Thomas Paine was talking about the hereditary system in general, and indeed we can question whether it ever had any right um, to begin. Um, but certainly, We can question whether um, the idea of the British monarch being the head of state of an independent Barbados, whether that had any right to begin back in 1966. And that really is the is the crux of the matter. Um, Maybe it would be useful just to also begin with a a definition of of the concept of a republic I I think that in understand the concept of a republic, one has to begin with the concept of sovereignty, which is the, the power of a state to do everything. That is necessary to govern itself. And of course, a republic is then a state. In which sovereignty is vested in the people. In all of the people. As a collective body. And, and, and when we think of a republic, we think of uh, governments, governments, um, officials who are elected by the people in exercise of their sovereign sovereign power in democratic elections. And we think of a head of state whose position and legitimacy can be traced back to the exercise by the people of their power in some form of democratic election process, rather than um, an an entity whose power and position is traced back to being a member of a special family um, with that hereditary concept of power and rulership. Let's go back to 1966. <clears throat> Barbados became independent on the 30th of November 1966 under the leadership of Right Excellent Errol Walton Barrow. However, you have to concede that the independence that we attained in 1966 was a structurally and constitutionally compromised independence. It was structurally and constitutionally compromised because Mr. Barrow made the strategic decision at the time to make two compromises with British imperial power. Um, the first compromise that he made with British imperial power was to concede that the highest court in Barbados would remain the British Privy Council. The second compromise was to concede that the head of state of Barbados. Mainly ceremonial but not totally ceremonial because the head of state. In addition to carrying out ceremonial responsibilities also carries out a number of important constitutional responsibilities, the head of state still has some still has power in our constitutional arrangements. Not nearly as much power as the head of government and the cabinet, but still. Um, substantial constitutional function. So the second compromise was to retain the British monarch as the head of state of Barbados. Why did Mr. Barrow make those compromises? Well, at the time when Mr. Barrow took Barbados into independence, um, he came face to face with quite a bit of opposition. Um, First of all, Um, There was the opposition of um, an element of the political class that felt that Barbados should not go into independence alone. Remember, after the breakup of the West Indies Federation in 1962, the um, Barbados, the colony of Barbados, was attempting to lead a process in the Eastern Caribbean to cobble together a new federation of the Eastern Caribbean, a federation of the so-called little eight. So there were some who felt that Mr. Barrow should have continued with that effort to try to pull together this Cari- this federation of the Eastern Caribbean that would then seek independence from Britain. And so they they were unhappy with, with him taking Barbados into independence alone. And then, of course, there were the, the usual partisan political actors who, um, regardless of how good a thing might be um, latch upon any effort to try to attack and embarrass the government of the day. There was the white community um, who were very much opposed to Barbados becoming independent, the white Barbadian community, that is. Um, in, in their opinion, Mr. Burrow was going to become a, a black dictator, and many of these white folk Uh, migrated out of Barbados, they left Barbados rather than rather than um, go through the prospect of of living under an independent, predominantly black government. Many of them fled to Australia, Canada and and New Zealand. And then, of course, there was um, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. some decades after 1966, in the in the in the early 1990s, um, some of the some documents were de- declassified, and um, among those declassified documents in Britain um, was correspondence between Prince Philip in 1964 and the British Prime Minister Harold Wilson, in which Prince Philip. Sought was seeking to convince the British Prime Minister not to grant Barbados independence. Um, he was making the point; he was making the case to to the British Prime Minister that Barbados had always been British, and, and that the Barbadian people were so wedded to the um, to to the to Britain that he should he should ignore the mouthings of 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 the um, of the political leadership that Barbadians did not want um, independence. And so Mr. Barrow was faced with all of that. And in the face of that kind of opposition, I think he made made those two compromises. And ever since then, we have been been trying to undo those two compromises. Well, between 2002 and and culminating in 2005, we were able to undo the first compromise. Barbados played a, a, a leading role in helping to construct um, the Caribbean Court of Justice. And having constructed the Caribbean Court of Justice as a regional court, Barbados then moved away from the Privy Council, and we made the Caribbean Court of Justice our the highest court in our land. Um, but the, the second compromise, the compromise having to do with um, with the head of state, that took a bit, a bit longer. And um, as Cynthia explained, there was first, the the, the first prime minister who broached it would have been prime minister Tom Adams back in the late 1970s. And the commission he set up said that no, Barbados was not ready. Barbados was not ready to remove ourselves from the the queen of England as our head of state. Um, Prime minister... Owen Arthur, he made made a go of it in the late 1990s. And he set up the Henry Ford Constitution Review Commission. And this is is the critical critical finding of the Henry Ford um, Commission on this issue. And I quote, unlike our predecessor commission, we had no difficulty in accepting that independence and the experiences gained from it have nourished in citizens a belief in themselves and that national identity has become a reality. Today, Barbadians are confident that they can properly manage all aspects of their national affairs. A succession of native governors general have discharged their duties with impartiality and decorum. They have not been seen as representing any particular group or interest, but all the people. In office, they have been non political and non partisan. They have reflected the people's highest values and aspirations. End of quote. So, what the Ford Commission was saying in 1998 when it delivered its report. Is that the Barbadian people had had reached the stage and had developed the consciousness and the 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 self confidence that they were ready to move away from from the British monarch and to establish their own um, head of state. And and certainly if that was the position in 1998 and, and, and mind you, this was a conclusion that the Ford Commission came to after a very extensive period of national consultation, um, town hall meetings and and all the rest of it. Certainly, if that was the condition of the Barbadian people back in 1998, well, then I can tell you, um, what, uh, 23 years later, the Barbadian people have, have further solidified that sense of national identity that sense of, of um, self-confidence, and um, so much so that um, just last year, um, Barbados was able, in a, very, in a very unified and united manner, to remove the statue of Lord Nelson, a statue that had stood, a statue that had been placed in the perhaps the most prominent position in, in Bridgetown by the slave-owning class. In um, in the year 1813, a statue that had stood there for 207 years. that that was demonstrative of um, the evolution in the consciousness of the of the Barbadian people. And so Prime Minister Motley (laughs) has done exactly what was required of her. What she has, what she has done is simply She has completed the independence process of 1966. This step that we are taking should really have been done in 1966. So there was no reason for any further delay. If the people in terms of their consciousness were ready for it in 1998, well then they they are doubly ready for it in 2021. And um, basically what this what this step is doing is that it is going to give the country. A psychological boost, a morale lifting boost. Um, It is going to give us a sense of national accomplishment and achievement. And it is going to give us a better and deeper appreciation of the historical journey or struggle towards um, self-determination and self-realization on the part of the masses of the Barbadian people who began this journey in enslavement with no rights, with no no autonomy. So, indeed, it has been a a very arduous journey um, towards freedom and self-determination and self-realization. Most of the work had already been accomplished when we became independent in 1966 and all we are doing now is is putting in place those final final pieces of the of the edifice on in January next year we move on we move on to have a year-long thorough review of all aspects of our system of governance and um, to, to devise any any new reforms that we think are necessary um, as we go forward into this 21st century.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ambassador, and uh, for framing it there within that, that longer historical struggle. And I'm sure there are issues we can pick up from both of your interventions with regards to those questions of the Privy Council, popular constitutionalism and so forth. Um, I'm going to hand over now to our third speaker, Dr. Derek O'Brien. And I think, Derek, you have some slides for us.
3: Okay, I'll try sharing those. Have I successfully managed to share them?
0: All good, thank you. Good,
3: okay. Uh, Thanks very much, Kate, for asking me to participate in this panel. It's a a huge honor to be on a panel with uh, so many prestigious uh, speakers. Uh, Kate, you asked me to, although this uh, conference is about uh, republicanism in Barbados, you thought it might be helpful if I gave a regional perspective on uh, republicanism uh, within the Commonwealth Caribbean. So um, I would just begin with a review of the current uh, state of play in the region and we'll see that with Barbados's transition to republican status, there's now four Uh, republics in the region, Uh, but eight of the countries in the in the region remain uh, constitutional uh, monarchy. So if you like, uh, constitutional monarchy remains the dominant strain of um, governmental systems uh, within the region. And what I want to talk about uh, in my presentation is, is, is how long is this going to remain the dominant strain. So I tried to think about the four countries that have become republics and what they might have in common, apart from a desire to uh, transition to republicanism. And with the exception of Dominica that embarked upon independence as a republic, all three other countries, that's uh, Barbados, Trinidad and Guyana, became republics as a result of a vote in parliament. Um, There was no uh, there was no requirement, no constitutional requirement to hold a referendum. So the people were never asked directly uh, to indicate whether or not they wanted to become a republic. Uh, The only other country in the region that would be able to do this to to achieve Republican status without a referendum would be Belize. So that's not required under belize's constitution and um so then i began to ask well why hasn't belize uh, followed the lead of these other countries and i mean please collect correct me if i'm wrong but as i understand it it is linked to the border dispute between belize and guatemala uh, and and the belief stroke hope that if that uh, border dispute escalated, the UK would come to the aid of Belize uh, because of having the Queen as the head of state. Uh, now, that uh, may be changing. Uh, most recently, the Prime Minister of uh, Belize, I'm probably pronouncing this wrongly, John Brasino, Brasino, um, has uh, said that uh, recently, Belize, uh, Belize has imposed a two-term limit on uh, their governor general and said that they are considering uh, at the end of the current governor general's uh, term of office that they will consider reviewing their system of governance. They may remain a parliamentary system, they may transition to sort of an executive presidency or they may have a sort of a hybrid parliamentary presidential system. I I presume he's alluding to something like the system in Guyana, but for for the present anyway, Belize is a constitutional monarchy. So what about everywhere else in the region? So in every other country in the region, um, in order to move from a monarchy to a republic, it would be necessary to satisfy to hold a referendum and satisfy certain uh, voting standards and I think we need to distinguish between those countries where a two-thirds vote in a referendum is required if you wanted if that country wanted to transition to a republic that's Antigua, Grenada and Saint Vincent and the other countries in the region, Bahamas, Jamaica, St. Kitts, St. Uh, Lucia and St. Vincent, where a simple majority in a referendum would be required. And I want to uh, move on now to look at the that first tranche of countries, that's Antigua, Grenada and St. Vincent, where there's a two-thirds majority required. And they're interesting because each of those have held referendums within uh, the last decade. So uh, most recently, Antigua held a referendum in 2018 on whether it should abolish the right of appeal to the uh, Privy Council and then replace it with a right of appeal to the CCJ. Now, not only did did the government fail to persuade two-thirds of voters in Antigua to approve that move, they, they were unable to even achieve the support of 50% of the voters. So um, that particular reform failed. Uh, in Grenada, there've been two recent referendums. Um, the first was in 20 sec- 2016, where technically speaking, there were seven referendums on seven separate constitution amendment bills that ranged from limiting the term of office of uh, prime minister um to uh replacing the cc replacing the jcpc with it with the ccj but interestingly the question of replacing the queen with a ceremonial president was was never included in any of those amendment bills the closest uh that the voters got to considering the role of the queen was a a change to the oath of allegiance and it was uh, suggested that uh, there should now be an oath of allegiance to the state rather than to the queen but the, the voters even re- rejected that recommendation no, so no single reform achieved uh, even 50% of the votes in the referendum Grenada then had a, a second bite at the cherry and two years later uh, at the same time as Antigua held another referendum on whether it should replace the Privy Council with the Caribbean Court of Justice again it fell sorry. sorry. i'm in a lecture theater where if you don't move around the lights switch off so yeah another referendum 2018 again less than 50% of the voters supported replacing the Privy Council with the Caribbean Court of Justice. Then we have St. Vincent and St. Vincent is the only country in the region that has actually directly asked its citizens whether they want to become a republic. So back in the referendum in 2009 and to be true, it was uh, entangled with a number of other uh, constitutional reforms that the uh, citizens were asked to vote on But but it, it is notable. Uh, in Saint Vincent, that fifty-five percent of the voters rejected uh, the government's proposals to reform the constitution. So, you know, so do, do we say the, the the reason that these uh, referendums failed was because of a uh, the requirement for a two-thirds majority, which is almost an impossible threshold uh, for any government uh, to meet. Well, let's then turn to the other countries in the region that could become republics if they held a referendum and a simple majority of citizens voted in support of that move. Well, again, uh, in these countries, the history of referendums is 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 one of of failure. Uh, there is no example of a successful refen- referendum having taken place. So. Um, We have the Bahamas that has held two referendums uh, in in the 21st century, in 2002 and 2014, and both were principally concerned with amending the constitution to guarantee gender equality. Now, that's a fairly, you would have thought, uncontroversial uh, constitutional reform, Uh, But it was rejected on both occasions by the voters. So less than 50% of voters supported it. And um, if if you look at uh, the Bahamas uh, and then you look at the record of the other countries that have held referendums, you begin to see a pattern emerging and you wonder if there is something like an amendment culture in the region where... Um, citizens are are actively hostile to constitutional reform, and there may be a number of explanations for that. I don't want to oversimplify this. I mean, one explanation uh, that's offered is that constitutional reform ends up with political point scoring, so that the government will suggest it, and the opposition. Uh, will, in a knee-jerk fashion, automatically oppose any reform that's suggested by the government. Um, But then I wonder how Jamaica fits into that picture, because um, since at least 2003, the Jamaican government has been threatening um, to become a republic. So firstly, with B.J. Patterson, when he led the PNP, back in 2003. And since then, successive uh, Jamaican uh, governments, both JLP and PNP uh, governments, have said that the time is right for Jamaica now to become a republic, for for all the reasons that the uh, ambassador so eloquently uh, spoke about. But Jamaica is stuck with these referendum requirements. and. I wonder if the reason why Jamaica hasn't is that the the Prime Minister just does not want to expend the political capital that would be necessary uh, to hold a referendum campaign for um, a transition to republicanism and then lose lose that referendum, because. I might be wrong about this, I'd have to go back and check, but so far as I know, every government that's held a referendum and lost the referendum has subsequent has lost the subsequent general elections. I mean, there, there may be some exceptions, but there are certainly uh, the, the examples. I mean, St. Vincent is an exception, but certainly the Bahamas are is the example of a government that lost the subsequent elections. So... Um, where does that leave us? I mean, I'm afraid it, it leaves us, I'm going to strike a really gloomy note uh, at this point, and it it should not be taken that I'm not a supporter of republicanism uh, at all. But uh, I suppose the, the, my conclusion is that it is fiendishly difficult to bring about constitutional reform of any kind, where it can only be affected by a referendum uh, requirement. And that means that the the prospects for republicanism elsewhere in the region, uh, with the exception of Belize, I would say look look pretty gloomy at the moment. I may be being unduly pessimistic, and I, you know, I don't speak with local knowledge. I'm speaking, for, you know, from the perspective of somebody who's four thousand miles away from this. Uh, but all I can do is is look to the the historical record, and, and that suggests to me it will be very difficult for the other countries to become republics. Okay, I hope I haven't exceeded my uh, 10 minutes.
0: You were perfectly on time. Thank you very much. Um, And
3: I'll stop sharing.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much indeed for that excellent regional overview and taking us through some of the mechanisms by which um, uh, republicanism can or, or perhaps cannot be achieved. Um, I'm going to pass over to our final speaker now, Professor Carolyn Cooper, and then we will take um, all of your questions at the end.
4: Thanks very much, Kate. My remarks combined two of my newspaper columns, and I'm sorry I wasn't here right at the beginning, I got frozen out. The first column was published in 2015 when David Cameron was UK Prime Minister and Portia Simpson-Miller was Prime Minister of Jamaica. And I begin with a quotation. At his favorite seaside resort of Weymouth, the story goes, King George III once encountered an absentee owner of a Jamaica plantation whose coach and liveried outriders were even more resplendent than his own. Sugar, sugar, eh? The king exclaimed, all that sugar. I found this gem in a book by Adam Hochschild, Buried the Chains, Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free an Empire Slaves. What King George should have said was, human trafficking, eh? All that human trafficking. And it wasn't only individual planters who were spectacularly enriched by the unpaid labor of enslaved Africans. Historians and economists, no less at UCL, have amassed the evidence. Britain's Industrial Revolution was fueled by the blood money of plantation slavery in the Caribbean. Bristol, Liverpool, and London all flourished on human trafficking. So there's no need for any more talk about the right to reparations. It's time for action. It's time to launch a boycott against Britain until the right to reparations is acknowledged and a carefully managed process of restitution is begun. A Caribbean boycott of Britain initiated by Jamaica may seem like idle talk, but with Norman Mandy's leadership, Jamaica was the second country after India to boycott apartheid South Africa. At the time, we were still a colony of Britain. But that didn't stop us. The South African government complained to Britain and the response was that Jamaica's regulation of trade was our own business. Unlike the PNP of Norman Manley, the present government doesn't seem to have the guts to stand up for our rights. Well, it was a PNP, but it's the same for the JLP now. Why are we agreeing to take scraps from Britain's table when we are entitled to so much more? Take, for instance, this promised piece of a prison According to a press release issued last Wednesday then by the Ministry of National Security, a non-binding memorandum of understanding has been signed between the governments of Jamaica and the UK to quote unquote, improve prison conditions in Jamaica. But that's not all. The prison will also be used to get rid of Jamaicans convicted of crime in the UK. The proposed prison transfer, prisoner transfer, which has to be approved by the Jamaican parliament is designed to turn us into a penal colony. According to David Cameron, quote, this is in the interest of both of us and is a good example of how we can work together to benefit people here in Jamaica and in Britain too. Cameron definitely take with the idiot, takes us for fools. What is Jamaica actually going to get out of this gift? A whole heap of criminals in a mega prison, that's what. And when our homegrown criminals join ranks with the deported Yadis and they start plotting together, it's going to be one hell of a congregation. On top of that, I suspect that Jamaica is not going to make much money out of the construction of that prison. I bet you anything, British architects will be hired to design the complex and the Brits will get all the high paying jobs. Local construction workers might get a break during the heavy lifting, but most of the promised millions will stay in the UK. We will become a penal connally all for nothing. It's a well-known development model. Foreign experts are usually the ones who benefit the most from overseas projects. Cameron himself admits as much. Jamaica will have access to a new 300 million pound fund for improving infrastructure across the Caribbean. But guess who will get the contracts? Cameron tells it like it is. Quote, I believe that this will benefit British businesses that have the knowledge and expertise to deliver infrastructure improvement, unquote. Cameron also promised that US $9 billion would be spent in the region on climate change projects. Quote, I am determined to ensure that some of that money will be spent right here. Unquote. Cameron knows that it takes a lot of political clout to actually allow development money to flow into so-called developing countries. And some doesn't sound like a high percentage. Cameron probably thinks that these monkey money projects will stop CARICOM from vigorously proceeding with a legal claim for reparations. Addressing the Jamaican parliament, he brazened it out. I do hope that as friends who have gone through so much together since those darkest of times, we can move on from this painful legacy and continue to build for the future. No prospect of deporting to the colonies, the direct descendants of enslavers to serve their ancestors' sentence for crimes against humanity committed here. We would need a rather big penitentiary that the British government will most certainly not be willing to build, not in their best interests, and no repatriation of their ill-gotten gains. Like many a modern criminal, the known descendants of former enslavers are living high on the hog, luxuriating in the proceeds of their ancestors' crimes. The word reparation comes from the same Latin root root as repair, reparare. Its fundamental meaning is re again, and perere make ready, prepare. Money can never repair the damage that was done to Africans, both on the continent and in the diaspora, as a consequence of transatlantic slavery. But we certainly can't move on without it, even if it means boycotting our friends. Now, the second column, Time for Mrs. Queen, was published in March this year. It was written in Jamaican and I've translated it into English. I'll read just the first paragraph in the original followed by the translation. Long time no, few politicians politician them, I say, Queen of England not supposed to be the head of Jamaica. A pure chat them a chat. Look from when we claim say so we're independent and Mrs. Queen still a rule we. make we a hang on when our fractal? She and the whole of your generation them no care if we live, are we dead? We better study the history. Quite a long time, our politicians have been saying that the Queen of England should no longer be Jamaica's head of state. It's nothing but talk. Look how long we've been claiming that we're independent and the Queen of England is still ruling us. Why are we hanging on her coattails? She and her entire lineage do not give a damn if we live or die. We had better study our history. Jamaican people certainly suffered after emancipation. We didn't get any land, money, nothing to make life. We were expected to continue working sacrificially on the plantations for little or nothing. The plantation owners were granted substantial compensation for the loss of our labor, and we got absolutely nothing. Only a bad reputation as worthless and unwilling to work. Work for nothing, and we're emancipated. Jamaicans fell on extremely hard times in 1865. There was a long drought and Dotty was very tough. By the way, Dotty is not broken English from dirty. It's a perfectly good word from Ghana. It's a tree language. Dotty means ground. Life was so hard, some brave people in St. Anne decided to send a letter to Queen Victoria begging her for land to cultivate. She was all the way in England and owned so much land in Jamaica. This land was idle. They even said they would send her some of the produce. Queen Victoria sent back a truly wicked letter. She wasn't the one who wrote it. Henry Taylor did. He worked in the West Indian Department of the Colonial Office. In the same way, someone in Queen Elizabeth's office wrote the trifling response to Oprah Winfrey's interview with Meghan and Harry. It doesn't matter that the Queens didn't actually pen the releases issued by Buckingham Palace. They've been upholding white power just the same from generation to generation. Queen Victoria's letter said, quote, the prosperity of the laboring classes, as well as of all other classes, depends in Jamaica, as in other countries, upon their working for wages, not uncertainly or capriciously, but steadily and continuously at times when their labor is wanted and for so long as it is wanted, and that if they would use their industry and thereby render the plantations productive, they would enable the planters to pay them higher wages," unquote. Why did we presume that we could work for ourselves? Queen Victoria's letter enraged Jamaican people and they rebelled. She is responsible for the Morant Bay catastrophe. More than 400 freedom fighters were slaughtered by the military. Nobody is going to be executed as a consequence of the trifling statement issued by Buckingham Palace about Meghan and Harry's interview. But some of the countries for which Queen Elizabeth remains the head of state are going to reject her. They no longer want her or her governor general to exert control over their affairs. It's high time for Jamaica to fire the queen. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much indeed for that wonderful presentation and for linking it to those issues of reparations. Um, So we are now going to open the floor to questions. Um, There are already a couple in the chat. So I'm going to go first to those. Um, Please, um, if you want to use the raise hand function, do that. And uh, then you can unmute and ask your question. Um, But I will begin with first one that came into the chat which is from one EJ who directs a question to the ambassador saying, ambassador you speak of republican principles yet there was no referendum conducted to determine a consensus would that not have truly demonstrated the will of the people and if any other panelists want to comment on that question of uh, popular uh, will uh, and referenda um, okay.
2: The, the head of state of Britain is a British person. The head of state of India is an Indian. The head of state of Japan is a, is a Japanese. Why would we need a referendum to tell us that the head of state of Barbados must be a Barbadian? It doesn't make sense. We don't need any referendum. Um, Professor O'Brien spoke about the history of referenda in the Caribbean. He said, There's never been a successful referendum in the Caribbean. That alone should tell you that the problem is not with the subject of the referendum. It is is with the mechanism of referendum itself. And it is because the British left these um, Caribbean countries with a two-party political system. The political two-party system is designed to divide the population. What typically happens with a referendum is that the opposition party embraces it as an opportunity to embarrass the government. And so they mobilize their forces. Um, The government supporters have no great motivation to vote because if if you reduce things to partisan politics, then the government is already in power their supporters have little motivation to come out and vote. But the opposition that is trying to get into power, they mobilize their supporters to embarrass the government in the hope that they will eventually get into power. And, and, that's, and, and, and so that is what you had. You know, we, we had, a, refer, we had a, a federation in the Caribbean, um, a referendum destroyed it. When, when, when Barbados was becoming independent, when Mr. Barrow wanted to take Barbados to independence in 1966, there were those who were clamoring that he must have a referendum. He said, look, a referendum has never been part of our governance or constitutional arrangements. We are not having a referendum. The people voted for me or for my party um, to govern this country and to make decisions in the best national interests. And we have decided independence is in the best national interest. If the people don't like what we have done, there's another general election coming up. And they can express their their view. So, Prime Minister Motley is quite right. We we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we felt that we had to hold a referendum to tell us that the head of state of Barbados should be a Bajan. And just very quickly for Dr. um, O'Brien, several of the countries that held referenda did not, several of the governments did not go on to lose, not only St. Vincent and the Grenadines, but um, the, re- the recent referendum on the <coughs> CCJ with Antigua and Grenada—they—they um, they, they haven't gone on to lose subsequently. Um, subsequently, subsequent
3: has there been an election since? Yeah.
2: Um, in Antigua, yes. Yeah. Can I? Yeah. Uh,
3: could I just? What one point I—I think I may have misunderstood is, I thought the proposal was that after the year-long consultation on constitutional reform in Barbados, there was going to be a referendum. But maybe I've misunderstood that?
2: Um, no, there's not, been a, there's not been any promise of any referendum. But um, what, what what the government has said is that, look, um, we are going to go through a, a, nas- a national consultation. It's going to take a year. We are going to look at all of the sections of our constitution month by month. And out, out of that process, um, the, the will of the people will have emerged as to um, whether they're some reforms that we would we would wish to see in our in our system of of governance but there's been no promise of a of a referendum coming coming out of that um, and has never had a referendum actually this is it's not it's it not part of our um, um governance process and tell the truth a referendum could be useful if it is a, a kind of non-partisan issue once it becomes once it's a partisan issue um, is very, is very problematic, though. And for me, to answer your question about the countries that need referenda, it will call for some political maturity for the government and opposition to, to, to discuss the issue, to come to some compact, that in the national interests, the country needs to transition to a republic, and that they are not going to make it a partisan um, political issue. If they can't do that, then I agree with you. There will be no there will be no possibility of these referenda being successful.
0: Thank you both. Um, there's a comment rather than the question on this theme of referendums in the chat. So I'll just read that out, and then I'm going to take a question from uh, Dylan Vernon. Uh, so thank you to the present. This is from Jackie Lewis, who wonders if the failed referendums and hostility to constitutional reforms should not take into consideration the global system of capitalism linked to the global system of militarization, superpowers, the global system of exploiting <laughs> Africa's mill and labour resources, miseducation, divide and rule. So um, I think we will come, I'm sure that this issue of referendum will come up, I'm taking that as a comment rather than the question, but if any panellists want to come <laughs> in on that, please do. Um, and now I'm going to take a question from Dylan Vernon.
5: Yes, uh, thank you and um, congrats on having a a very um, timely and informative session. All all very good presentations. Um, I I will first make a comment on on Belize and and then uh, ask uh, a question on Barbados. Um, Derek uh, very interestingly mentioned that uh, Belize might be the country that uh, has the, the best chance of uh, moving to a republic uh, in the not-too-distant future. And um, I do concur with, with that view. The, um, the talking piece, um, has been uh, positive in that regard. And uh, one of the moves made, and, and this is a little correction of uh, some information shared by Derek, is that uh, The government passed an amendment recently, a bill uh, enacted a a law recently that uh, limits the Governor General's tenure to one single term of seven years. And uh, it also has been, at the government level, um, uh, making noises about uh, this might be uh, the last one and and moving to a a republic. Derek did mention that part of the concern in Belize, it doesn't prevent us from acting as a, as a country, but it does. Is, it is a consideration that there is something called a Guatemalan claim to Belize, which is now uh, at the International Court of Justice. And to what extent that still plays a role in, in the timing of uh, what might happen here is still a question. Um, but there is talk about it in Belize. And as, as Derek said, no, uh, no referendum will be required. Uh, and the government in power right now, like the one in Barbados, does have a very super majority. My, my question on the Barbados is this. Um, the, it has to do with the fact that there will be a one-year process of constitutional uh, reform discussions ending in what I would assume to be recommendations, I think it has been clarified that there will not be a referendum at the end or one is not contemplated now. Um, why didn't Barbados wait uh, for this process to next year to happen? And as a part of that package uh, have in it, this move to uh, a, a republic, um, why, why act this year? Um, some might see it as putting the, the cart uh, before the horse. And um, I, I suppose a, a linked question would be also, won't one of the possible recommendations coming out of this commission be for there to be a sort of presidential executive that is going beyond the, the, the symbolic republicanism that is entailed in? having the Queen no longer be head of state. Um, and uh, perhaps this, this goes to um, Ambassador Kamisang. Uh, but anyone else can, can, can jump in on it if, if, if they so choose. Um, and I suppose, finally, if he can add, um, is there any popular demand um, in Barbados uh, presently for, for constitutional reform, or is it still an elite government-led process? Uh, thanks.
2: I I can only tell you that having the Queen as as, as the head of state of an independent Barbados is a badge of shame. We have divested ourselves of a badge of shame. It can't come quickly enough. It should have happened 55 years ago. There's no reason for us to wait any longer. There's no... Umbilical connection between having our own native democratically elected head of state and carrying out process of, of um, a national consultation on governance arrangements and and, and, and perhaps ending up with um, some, some reform of our governance of our governance structures. That's something that should happen. That's something that should happen periodically. Um, certainly at least every generation um, the, the people should have some kind of national consultation to have a fresh look at their structures of governance and to see whether they need to make any reforms. But that's that's not directly connected to the, 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 the psychological issue of having our own head of state and certainly not having a head of state that represents um, our. our a royal family that was implicated historically in our enslavement in, and in our subjugation. So we are simply removing this badge of, of shame and giving ourselves this um, psychological boost. And just to say, um, um, Professor O'Brien, uh, you were right, Antigua's election did take place before, before, um, the, before the referendum and, and, and not after. Uh, so that, that's that's the best way I can answer that one about um, about uh, whether whether we are rushing it, you know? 55 years too late, in my opinion. Better late, better late than never.
0: <laughs> thank you. I'll take the question from Gad and then I'll move to some of the ones that are in the chat.
2: Okay, well, thank you very much. Those were really uh, superb uh, presentations and Carolyn, of course, uh, nothing less than I would expect, as you know, f- from before. Uh, I think my question is, is for the ambassador, which I also found very interesting. I particularly found uh, your discussion of uh, why it didn't happen in the 60s, or the kind of opposition to uh, republicanism uh, in, in, in the 1960s. So I'm, it almost builds on, on uh, Dylan's question, which is, how, if there is any, how would you describe the opposition to uh, Barbados becoming a republic today? You know, when, when the Prime Minister, when the announcement was made, was made in the throne speech in September of last year, there was virtually no opposition. It was virtually no opposition. And then um, around about March of this year, the, there was a contest for, there, there was developing a contest for power um, within the opposition Democratic Labour Party. And one of the candidates um, in positioning himself, in fact, a former a former um, High Commissioner, Barbados High Commissioner to Britain, who at the time of the win, at the time when, who was involved with the win rush issue, and at the time when the announcement was made in the throne speech that Barbados was moving in this direction, was very supportive in fact, was interviewed on the BBC supporting this idea and condemning um, Britain and saying that the people of Barbados had lost confidence in, in the British crown because of the Windrush scandal. But by March of this year, he was now trying to become the president of the opposition party. And he raised it. <laughs> he raised it, um, this opposition to... Um, so. What he had approved a few months earlier, he was now singing a, a, a different tune for, for partisan reasons. So, so then, you know, the, the opposition actors pick, picked up on it. And there's obviously, the, there's always a residual um, hankering for colonialism. There's a, there's a white Barbadian community that still has that residual hankering. Um, ele- elements of that community. Or I should have said that many of those who left Barbados for Australia and Canada and New Zealand in the in the 1960s subsequently returned to Barbados because they discovered that they could actually live better in Barbados than they were living in, in those countries. But anyhow, so so yes, there's been that kind of some opportunistic um, um Opposition And what gave it a little ground to run on was the fact that after the government made the announcement in September of last year, the, there was a hiatus in terms of national engagement um, with, with the people, you know, like a public education program. There was something of a hiatus, but that can be explained by the COVID-19 situation. I mean, the government was grappling with a pandemic and, and so all attention was on how do you deal with COVID-19 um, so government came kind of having announced it last year government really only started its public education outreach on it um, late, fairly late fairly late in the game so that gave that gave some ground for, for opposition that this is being rushed and people are people have not been engaged and and people don't know enough about it and so forth. But I don't think there's any real deep-seated, I don't think there's any real substantial deep-seated opposition to the idea that we must have, we must have our own um, uh, head of state. I think it's more opportunistic um, opposition and not not of any really um, substantial quantity. Um, to, to, to make any real difference. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank,
2: Thank you, you very much.
0: Thank you. I, I should add here that um, as part of the Visible Crown project, we will be conducting um, what will be the, re- the first ever region-wide poll of attitudes to the monarchy in the Caribbean and uh, poll on um, alternative attitudes to alternative systems of governance. Uh, because of COVID, um, that got uh, that has uh, obviously been massively complicated. Because this would have been an in- in-person survey across uh, 12 countries plus two of the non-independent um, uh, British overseas territories. However, um, Cynthia Giles and her team at UE Cave Hill uh, will be conducting the poll in Barbados in the coming in, in these two weeks. Um, uh, prior to November the 30th so we will have some actual data behind this um, uh, soon to 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 try to understand what are the popular attitudes to the monarchy uh, to capture it at this at this present sort of snapshot of time um, we are running close to the end so I want to make sure that I get to the questions that I see in the chat so maybe I'll just um, read out a couple and uh, panelists can respond. And Cynthia's come back. So the very interesting question from Judy Richards, who says that there is a persistent claim that crown land is owned by the Queen. Can this be clarified here, please? And also as a reclaiming of such land was seen as reparations for enslavement. What can we expect next from a republic? Uh, is anyone, uh, does
2: anyone have... Crown, crown land is government land. It, it, it belongs to the government of Barbados. It's just because of this constitutional monarchy that we have that the terminology crown is "crown" is used. But after the 30th of November, it will be called state land. It's, it belongs to the government of Barbados, not to the British royal family.
0: To the crown. And this links into another question um, uh, on from Carlisle Leach, you asked for the description of the economic benefits derived and anticipated challenges as a result of Bayesian republicanism. Um, so uh, yes, what if any of the economic benefits to be derived from this move? And um, I would ask um, if Carolyn wants to come in here as well in terms of uh, any insights from the Jamaican context, that would also be welcome. Mm-hmm. I suspect that the short answer is that there, there, uh, are <laughs>
2: no sorry, sorry. Um, it's a psychological <coughs> benefit. Economic. A benefit. It's a self-respect benefit. It's, there's no direct economic benefit, only to the extent that with that psychological boost, with that boost to uh, self-confidence and, and, a, and a deeper sense of, of personal and national identity that leads on. You know, to to a more assertive performance in, in, in the economy field, but but basically it's 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 about symbolism, and it's about self respect, and um and 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 psychology more so than any direct economic benefit.
4: I I would I would answer. Um, am I on? Yes, yes, yeah, I would answer by quoting an email I got from one of my friends in the UK in response to this, the notice of the um, forum. It says the pressing question has to be whether the activity of creating a Republic of Barbados and doing away with British heredity royalties, headship of the state, apart from generating little, dear be thought, let alone said cheap excitement amounts to an actually substantive move. True, Barbados has noisily beaten the allegedly more radical Jamaica to this punch, but the move is barely earth-shaking. It should be noted that the British Commonwealth is largely populated by nation states and our republics. In the so-called Commonwealth Caribbean, Guyana, Trinidad, Tobago, and Dominica, long ago attained that status. Lawyers have an expression, little has turned on it. It may apply in this case, what have any of those countries done as a result of being republics that they would not, may not otherwise have done? Try little or nothing. So, you know, um, in my the answer to the question, what are the economic benefits? Maybe very few, what are the psychological benefits? Maybe very few either, because one of the things that irritates me is that Jamaicans have a lot of big chat, but we'd hardly get angered about the major issues that should concern us so it's as though the everyday struggle for survival is what is on people's agenda. I think for the majority of Jamaicans it doesn't matter one way or the other whether we're a republic because I don't think they think it's going to make a big difference in their everyday struggle for survival so you know it's it, it may be symbolic and I agree symbolism is important my discipline is literature but let us not make too much of the symbols but at the same time i believe i agree with david that there's a psychological benefit to knowing that a jamaican is the head of state not the queen especially as i try to contextualize the british monarchy's relationship to us it you know it's a total exploitative kind of relationship why would we expect uh, having the queen as a head of state you know is going to be in any way beneficial to us poor norman man they had great admiration for the parliamentary system and felt it was a wonderful thing. That's probably one of the reasons why we didn't get rid of the queen at independence. The, the sense of the monarchy and the, 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 way, the forms of governance of the UK being so wonderful. We have, to, we have to stand on our own two legs and try to see what kind of economic benefits we can generate for ourselves out of full
0: emancipation and full independence. Thank you very much. Uh, there's a, 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 maybe an addendum to this in, in the chat from Kessoa John, my colleague at the Institute, who asked, do Caribbean governments not pick up the bill when royal visits take place? Would it, would, that, would an economic benefit be that that bill is effectively cancelled? Um, although she goes on to add, this may also be a myth. I'd be grateful for some clarification if so. So who picks up the bill for uh, when Elizabeth uh, comes calling? Not, not only picks up the bill.
2: But if you know the history of Barbados, for 175 years, from 1662, 1663 to 1838, um, Britain imposed a tax of 4.5% on everything produced and shipped from Barbados. And those resources, those financial resources, went to the British Uh, Monarchy, those resources were used to pay pensions and annuities to British aristocrats and members of the royal family. Those resources were used to pay the salaries of the governors in the Channel Islands and other other British colonies. And Barbados basically financed um, the British administration, the British um, colonial administration of Barbados. So, uh, you know, Britain... (laughs) It has been an exploitative relationship from the very, from the very beginning. And yes, of course, when British royalty visits, the Barbadian government and the Barbadian taxpayers um, pick, pick up the tab, but we have been picking up the tab all along. And um, when when that tax came to be abolished in the, in the British Parliament um, in 1838, it was deemed to be the most... Criminal in, and injurious tax in the history in the history of taxation. So anyhow, that's that's a little bit of our of our um, history with 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 the British the British monarchy. It's time to go. <laughs> also,
1: Kate, I just wanted to add to that. I'm sorry, I'm back. Um, I guess for your last your remaining minutes, I was I'm able back. To, back. to come back um into the meeting. I just want to add to, to 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 that the last um set of comments made by, by David, that for sure, when you have an independent um, state that seeks to bring in foreign dignitaries to its shore, whether or not your Republic or your constitutional monarchy, um, there are certain costs which are associated with that. So of course, um, when Barbados transits to the Republic on the 30th of November, um, any official occasion that the Barbados government will invite, will you know need to invite um, some foreign dignitaries it means automatically the government will have to um, pick up, pick up that tab. That is, that goes with being an independent state and inviting, um, you know, foreign representatives, ambassadors, et cetera, to come and participate in whatever formal occasion that you have. That will continue. But the bottom line is that there's a lot of myths that in fact, um, you know, constitutional monarchies in the Caribbean have benefited positively, um, from being a member of, you know, of of the Commonwealth. And what you keep trying to say to people is that whether or not Barbados becomes a Republic or or does not Barbados remains a member of the Republic that in fact, whether or not Barbados transits to a Republic or or remains a constitutional monarchy, we have to focus as I think that's the point Caroline is trying to make. We have to keep focusing on the economic policies that we're pursuing and to ensure that what we try to do is to focus on transforming our economies, transforming our societies and that kind of a focus Um, will have to take place um, whether or not we are in fact pursuing republicanism or in fact a parliamentary republic because that's the biggest task so that in relation to the Barbados situation what I find very um, important and I'm not sure there was discussion on that because unfortunately we had to leave to go to the meeting, but um, it's very important that one of the cardinal, uh, uh, one of the critical elements that's going into this transition to a republic in Barbados is the fact that the Barbados government has decided that it is going to and the debate is coming up um i think shortly but i decided that it is going to have a charter um, and if you'll read that charter what you will see is that for me one of the most important elements of that charter is the fact that what Barbados Barbados is trying to do is to commit all Barbadians to the achievement of a just society. Now, embodied in that uh, that charter, you may not see the manner in which or the means by which they will do so, but certainly in terms of the transformation that Caroline is speaking about, I think that charter, ideologically and philosophically captures the need for us to engage in in fundamental changes um, in terms of how we organize our economy in issues of economic justice etc all are captured by that um, charter
0: of civil society thank you very much um luke you have a, a question you have memories of um guyana transitioning to a republic where's luke gone Oh, maybe he's dropped out. Luke, are you there? I'll read it. I'll read Luke's question and see if he comes. I'm
5: yes. Oh,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm here, Kate. Thank,
2: thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm here. Yes, no, the, the question was I, I wanted to say a massive thanks to everybody, really. It's already been a fascinating discussion um, and exciting to listen to. And I think they did a point about actually um, it being a, a badge of shame to really still be under the British. Krung, you know, is something that is worth much, really, in our minds and our psychological development and so on. So I think it's a critical thing for us to be doing. So the question that I wanted to put to the panel was, you know, what are steps or what are the next things we actually need to do, not only to help the other countries to become republics, but also we still have many colonies in the region. And how do we start to get to even move them from being colonies to becoming independent? And I think this is a challenge that is something we would like to get engaged uh, in as um, Caribbean Labour solidarity. But yeah, thank you for thank you again.
0: Thank you. I don't know if anyone has any answers for uh, what's going to happen to the um, so-called British Overseas territories, which uh, have been in the news here um, uh, recently because of the connections to the um, uh, current Tory corruption scandal in Parliament and the links to our um, Attorney General, uh, but anyway that's that's yeah. a, a yeah, Kate,
2: Kate, um, very quickly, um, Barbados was Britain's mother colony in the Caribbean. Barbados was known as Little England, so I, I hope the message goes out that if Little England <laughs> um, can make that break and um, move away from the British monarchy, then any other any other Caribbean territory should be able to do it, too. The other thing that we, that we need to um, emphasize is that by making this move, we are also solidifying the principle of, of democracy, that we have a head of state who is going to be elected according to uh, democratic principles. Uh, we, are moving, we are moving away from uh, this concept of, of special family, um, social privilege, uh, hereditary rule and and so forth. So we are consolidating the democratic um, ethos. We uh, many of the the British overseas territories are associate members of CARICOM. So British Virgin Islands, Turks and Caicos, Anguilla, um, Cayman Islands, um, the the Bermuda they're all associate members of CARICOM. And um, our vision in the Caribbean has to be we have to so strengthen the Caribbean community, CARICOM that we are able to encourage and and facilitate um, those that are still colonies to to try to make that break to independence and to to become full members of the Caribbean community. Our our vision must be of a totally independent and autonomous Caribbean civilization. We still have too much colonialism in in our region and our long-term vision must be to consolidate Caribbean as, as, as an independent and autonomous civilization devoid of, of, of any European or North American colonies. But that's something we're
4: going to have to work can I Can I come in? Yes, please do. Yes. I just wanted to refer to Guadeloupe and Martinique, broadening it out of the British sphere. Um, you know, I a friend of mine called me last week to say, you know, they're not taking any vaccines because of the history of the islands, Guadeloupe and Martinique being poisoned by chemicals from France, you know, the chemicals that were sprayed on the banana plantations. And there's this residual terror about what France is doing to them. But it, it hasn't translated yet into a real movement to disengage politically from France. I think the the Martinicans and the Guadalupe are getting close, but you see, you have this history of distrust, but then there's this whole sense of being part of a, a system that is difficult to break out of. And I think it's the same problem that Jamaica, many Jamaicans a few years ago poll was done and a significant majority of Jamaicans said, we should not have been independent, we should have remained as a colony of Britain. And if you ask them specifically what benefit would have come from that, they can't tell you, you. But they just know that things would have been better under Britain and they'd have no trust for local politicians. And truth be told, you can quite understand why many people are cynical about our politicians, because many of them come from very impoverished circumstances. All they can think of is (coughs) accumulation, They are capitalists to the core. They are not concerned about the majority of the people. And so, you know, it's not that the British would care about us because we know the history. But at least I feel that there might have been a benefit there, some residual benefit. And I think this is why our politicians now have to make a commitment to the people of the region because the politicians basically are scammers and people know this. And so they are very cynical about politics. I don't know how we're going to move forward as Caribbean states if we don't address the issue of the fundamental distrust of politicians that is throughout the region. It's not just in Jamaica. People are cynical about politics, representation of politics. They don't see any benefit for it. And we just maybe have to go back and look again, beyond CARICOM to some real fundamental federation and integration where as small states we can collaborate to make ourselves more sub more more sustainable because with all of this climate change stuff you know we're going to be underwater soon so <laughs> we really need to be thinking in a larger way about what development means and what our future is in the region each of us becoming a little republic is not necessarily going to solve the larger problem of systemic inequities and how we can move forward to sustain life in this in these small islands if
1: I may Kate if I may I absolutely agree and I just wanted to piggyback on something which David said about um the role that Barbados has probably played in the eastern caribbean again because I was not there I, I'm not sure if it was addressed but I think I have to make the point that when you look at Barbados, part and parcel of why the transition has been so easy, easily done in Barbados, in a matter of a a few months, really, because the committee was only put in place in April, of 2021 and in by November we transit to a, a republic and one of the things in in Barbados is the fact that and perhaps Derek addressed it but okay. is is the fact that only Barbados constitution there is really no need for a referendum requirement in other words that level of entrenchment does not exist in the country so it was it, 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 it was fairly easy for Barbados to make that transition when you look at the other eastern caribbean countries unfortunately or fortunately depend depending on and where you come from, the constitution requires that even after there is support in parliament, that it must be put to the public, and you must have, in some cases, two thirds majority, and in some cases, three quarters of the population who are voting must support the transition to a to a republic or any change to the constitution of that nature. So that when we look at, for instance, what took place in Saint Vincent, it explains um, why it is we haven't gotten any further. But it is also beyond just the issue of how. The, the referendum the referendum goes in the ver- in the various communities. I think we also have to look at how um, a package of of reform associated also with a transition to republic may in a sense, frighten the political elite itself. So that when I think about the process in San for instance, and we have a document, a constitutional reform document, which was presented after five years of consultation with the people. Um, and we produced a document that was well in excess of 300 pages, I think well thought out. At the end of the day, when it went to parliament and debated the, the, the parliament, which had in fact supported in a, in a very bipartisan manner, the establishment of the constitutional reform commission rejected the report largely because we were we were trying to in fact um, deal with the, the balance of power or, or the sharing of power in our political model and trying to ensure that we had a kind of a separation of power as well um, even though we are not going to in fact adopt the American political system. And it was entirely rejected and one of the reasons why they rejected the model, which was that we presented in St Lucia, uh, was partly because you we were separating the elected members of the parliament from ministerial portfolio and it goes to something that Carolyn said unfortunately and again a lot of the things on, a lot of, we don't have concrete evidence, but it is there. A lot of the things we have uh, you know anecdotal, but it is there. Um, and they were objecting to the fact that you're trying to separate elected members of the parliament from having ministerial posts. And what I'm, and, and I keep arguing but we do not elect ministers. What we elect are parliamentarians, but there's a devaluing of the role of the legislative branch of government. There's a devaluing of the role of, of the legislature. And in and in fact, what, they, what, what we have done is to, in a sense, put a lot of, of attention on the executive branch of government so that anybody you elect into parliament feels by definition that they have to be a member of parliament for a number of reasons. Perhaps it has to do with the fact that they have access to resources that they can do or they want. But at a fundamental level, what we are seeing is that that access to ministerial posts and therefore a ministry does give individual members of parliament the opportunity to engage and continue with their clientelist politics. Which is, in, which is a problem that clearly in the Caribbean now have to deal with. So that the model that was suggested for St. Lucia, as I said before, was rejected. But I think we need to also bear in mind that we have to look at the constitution and the constitution of the Eastern Caribbean says very clearly, you have to have a referendum. Barbados does not have to have a referendum. And therefore it is very easy for the Barbados government to decide, well, um, we don't have to strictly speaking, we are now on, on legal grounds and we can, um, you know, just simply transit
4: to the Republic. Can I just add quickly to that in Jamaica, you know, there's an attempt being made to tie in the move to republicanism with leaving um, the Privy Council, you know, so you start to mix up all kinds of things that are not, you know, needed to be mixed up because it's part of a way of just saying we're going to change but doing nothing. I mean, the Prime Minister of Jamaica recently became a member of the Privy Council. How can you be talking about... Republicanism and in 2021, or no, you agree to be a member of the Privy Council, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's it's schizophrenic. Could I
2: could I just say very quickly that this unidimensional image of Caribbean community politicians and um, governments as seemingly <laughs> callous and, and 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 corrupt and dysfunctional is not correct. Um, I wish to say that you will find very few Barbadians who will tell you that Barbados is, is not much better off as an independent nation than, than we were as a British colony. Um, in Barbados, at one point, rose to the position number 19 in the United Nations Human Development Index, measuring quality of life of, of the country. So I can speak for Barbados. We can point to a country that has made substantial progress during the, during the independence era. So I just want, I, I, you know, yes, we have flaws, but I want to push back against this, this idea. That, 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 that somehow the entire, the political class and, you know, and our governments is, that is some um, totally negative story. It is not. And, um, and so, yes, so definitely, definitely, you will find it very hard to find Barbadians who would, who would wish to argue that the, that the country was better off um, in the colonial era than it is today as an independent country.
1: David, I would would certainly want to agree with you in relation to the generalizations that we have made, broad generalizations, but I don't think the two things are in fact inconsistent um, in relation to that. However, let me just say, and I'm not um, standing up for anyone, but I'm reading the chat and I noticed that Derek says that he has to leave at 7 o'clock. So perhaps Derek wants to comment on a number of the things that we put on the table. So Kate, I mean, I'm not doing the moderating job, but I read clearly that he wants to leave. So I would like to hear from Derek.
3: So I'm I'm really sorry because as I say it's a fascinating discussion and I really don't want to leave but I agreed that I'd be somewhere else by seven thirty so I'm going to have to leave uh, fairly shortly. Um, I think what what would I what would I say? I mean I I think you know every country in the region should move to uh, republican status if that's what its uh, citizens want. Um, my uh, you know I've tried to explain the the difficulties in other countries where there's a referendum requirement and the ambassador has brilliantly explained how referendums can you know fall prey to. uh, political partisanship, the the only thing is, and I think this is a concern that you've expressed Cynthia is that there is a principle of participatory democracy that's beginning to emerge as an international constitutional norm, Uh, and I, I would worry not about this particular. Uh, constitutional change because it does seem to me to be uh, essentially symbolic but if more fundamental constitutional change was to be affected even if there is consultation with the public but the public don't directly get to vote on that constitution constitutional change through a referendum and I was that's why I was slightly concerned because the amb- ambassador was saying that there is no plan um, after the year's consultation in Barbados uh, about constitutional reform there's no um, plan to to hold a referendum on on that uh, on those proposed reforms. I, I think that may be uh, slightly concerning, although I, I understand all the reservations about referendums as tools for constitutional reform. Uh, yeah, I just so- want,
1: let, me, let me just respond to that. I am not sure. Maybe David has an insight that I don't have, but I think everything is on the table in relation to what can come out of the consultations that are taking place post-December Um, 2021. So a lot, I think, depends on the consultation which is going to take place month by month, month chapter by chapter, issue by issue, and perhaps, 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 we may very well see that there is a referendum on one or two issues. My problem with the referendum is that I understand the significance in relation to, you know, the need to include people in in the decision-making process. By the end of the day, if you look at um, Antigua, and you look, if you look at Grenada, for instance, who have held, and even the Bahamas, who've held referenda recently, what we are seeing is that, in a sense, it's sort of almost hijacked by opposition, um, which has absolutely nothing to do with the reforms that are being suggested. So do I like the idea of a referendum? Of course I do because I, I believe in democracy by the end of the day, I understand it's a tool that can be manipulated by people who opposed to a particular regime that is in power as against to a set of reforms. So, but I'm not sure, again, David, you may have an insight I don't Cynthia, have, I'm not sure if referendums off the
2: table. I, I want to clarify Cynthia, I didn't say, I said that there's been no announcement
0: Right, that, yes.
2: that the the year's um, consultation will end um, with 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 a referendum, yeah. you know. So, but I don't know. I, yes. You're quite right, and it may depend on how significant the changes that are being proposed. If if the yes. changes are very significant, um, it may require a a, a a referendum. So so we, we, we really don't know um, um yet, um, Professor O'Brien. All I was saying is that there's been no announcement that.
0: There will be a referendum. Yeah, we'll see. we we'll see. Panelists, um, I hate to cut this really fascinating discussion short. We've overrun now. I, it been so interesting. I've allowed it to overrun for seventeen minutes past the uh, the uh, the time, uh, which is a reflection of how interesting and enriching this discussion has been. I can see it's one that's going to run and run, and I can see that this is something that we're going to have to. Revisit after November the 30th, and during this whole um, year-long process of um, that Barbados is entering as of January of constitutional reform, um, there are further events um, along these lines um, being held by UE Cave Hill. They they're holding a number of town hall meetings on this subject. The next one is on the 18th of November, so look out for um, the flyers from UE Cave Hill on that. Um, Uh, if I would be delighted if you would join us for the next Caribbean Seminar Series in our series, which is on the 1st of December, where we will be hosting Professor Ada Ferrer, who's going to talk about her new book, Cuba, an American Story. And apologies to everyone who did not get to uh, have their questions read out. If there's questions in the chat, um, I can pass on those um, questions to the speakers, but I, I want to thank um, so much our speakers, Cynthia Barr giles Ambassador David Commonstone, Derek O'Brien and Professor Carolyn Cooper for such a fabulous discussion and to everyone in the audience for your